I do want to talk about uh, bringing good news uh, into our communities. Uh, how do we have spiritual dialogues with people? Uh, how do we bring up uh, conversations about the Lord in a naturally yet supernatural way? And as we uh, start summer, of course, we have a lot of barbecues, and uh, it's a great time to socialize. And we all know that the best topics to bring up at a barbecue would be politics and religion. They just seem to be a hit. And, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, how do we do this uh, in a way that's just like winsome? In fact, you know, what I find with the people that I hang around with, uh, they love talking about politics on the assumption that you agree with what they think is the right politics. And then it's like everybody just, you know, rails on who's ever in power or not in power or whatever. But if you like disagree with what the crowd is saying about politics or religion, uh, you are bound to pick up some scorn uh, or being ostracized pretty quickly. So uh, I want to not talk about religion. <laughs> I mean, I do want to talk about religion as in relationship with God. I don't want to talk about religion as in, you know, all the uh, trappings of church uh, that for many can seem pretty dull. I do want to talk about uh, the things in church that give us life as we connect it to the Lord. And I have very little interest in uh, talking about different political views. But I, you know, these things have a way of uh, integrating uh, in and uh, being part of what we do. And our viewpoints and our mindset uh, is influenced by the things that we believe and the things we're passionate about. Now, last weekend, uh, we had the outreach, we had the race up at the Hopkinton High School, the Timlin uh, race, it was a 5K race, and then after the race, as uh, many of you know, because many of you prayed for us, and I thank you for the prayer, uh, we, do, uh, we have a couple of tents, as you can see on this photograph, where we do balloons and face painting, and the basic idea here is, how do we just like love on the community, and, uh, you know, be good news uh, to the community in a practical way. You know, for many people, uh, when they see the name Vineyard Church, they would think, what, is that a, some kind of weird cult? I mean, what would people look like that would even go to a church like that? And then we are, you know, in a public forum, they're like, oh, they look pretty normal. You know, uh, they actually run races and do these sort of things. So it's a good uh, opportunity to interact with people. But uh, I particularly uh, wanted to have a lot of spiritual dialogue with people on the day. And of course, uh, you know, how do you engage people in spiritual conversation um, when it's an event like this, when we're busy painting faces and, uh, and uh, you know, just trying to enjoy the, the day. But uh, I had a lot of very, very wonderful uh, conversations with really a lot of people. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised by the number of uh, Catholic people that I uh, spoke to. And, uh, you know, my question would be, you know, are you, do you go to church? And if so, you know, do you like it? And uh, so uh, many of the Catholic folks I spoke to said, yep, that they find that church is really relevant to them. It's giving them life. And uh, their kids have just taken First Communion. And First Communion is like a really big deal. And uh, one, one mom told me, she said, I don't, want to make, I don't want my kids to make the mistake I made. Uh, I didn't do First Communion. And then when I tried to get married in the Catholic Church, it wouldn't let me get married. So I want my kids to do First Communion just so that all the options are open. But after First Communion, they're kind of done. You know, it's, that's it. But uh, I, many were 
we had a positive, um, we're attending a church, because, you know, the other question you always ask, the follow-up question, okay, so you're Catholic, do you go to church? Yes, I do. Uh, do you like it? Yes, I do. Well, how often do you go to church? And typically, for me, the response is like, ah, you know, like deer in the headlight, maybe once a year. But everybody that I spoke to were either going uh, every week or once a month. I mean, they just, I, I don't know if I was just a lucky day at the, uh, speaking to people. Uh, I uh, spoke to, let me say this, I think almost everybody I spoke to was willing to talk to me or respond to me as I try to engage him in um, discussion about faith. Uh, one lady was highly offended, and so she basically said, look, you know, I don't want anything, it's, faith is not for everybody, but is it okay if my kid still gets their face painted? And I said, well, of course it is, it's not like conditional, like, okay, you know, I'm like the, the gate, of course you can, and she said, well, well, I just appreciate, and you're always doing these face painting things, and it's really nice, but I have no interest in religion, religion's the problem, not the solution, I said, okay, whatever, I'm not here to argue with you or fight with you. I'm just here to engage those that want to engage. I spoke to one lady who was Muslim, who was from Turkey, and, you know, again, uh, people put up these gates. They say, well, I'm Catholic, I'm Muslim, I'm Jewish, and the idea there is, like, don't talk to me anymore because I'm Jewish, Catholic, Muslim. So, of course, I asked this lady, I said, so, okay, so I've got a couple of questions about the Quran. Can you, can you answer them for me, like, how well do you know the Quran? Oh, she said, well, I, don't, I don't know the Quran at all. I was like, okay, so how like, connected to are you as a Muslim? I'm not. I just like, grew up in Turkey. Everybody's Muslim. I'm Muslim because everybody else is Muslim. I know nothing about it. Oh, okay, okay. So now we've got a different discussion going, right? And uh, then I spoke to some other uh, uh, family, and they were from China. And uh, they had two teenagers and uh, three kids that were under the age of 10, and uh, I said, what do you do for faith? We know nothing about faith. Uh, what religion or what God do you follow or believe in? We, we know nothing about God. We don't follow anything. Uh, okay, can I invite you to church? Yes, uh, I'm, I'm interested. Uh, talk to me about it. At which point the two teenagers are like, Mom, we've got to go. Like, there's no face painting and no balloons for us. And, and the mom was really interested. And so we ended up having a pretty fruitful dialogue. Which brings me to a verse that I didn't preach on uh, as we're going through the book of Acts. And it's the verse right before the section that I want to preach on today. And this is the idea when Paul was in prison and when he was released from prison, he, the jailer responded to him and the whole family ended up coming to faith in Jesus. And when I was speaking to this uh, family from China, I realized that I think we're going in a different uh, way with evangelism in this modern era. In the past, it's been sort of the American thing to call people personally, one-on-one, -on -one, you need to accept Christ, yes I will, no I won't, and it's very individualistic because they're a very individualistic society. But looking at this family from China, I realized that pretty much the whole family needs to accept Christ together. I mean, this is like all or nothing. I couldn't imagine like one kid accepting Christ and this really getting some traction in the family. On the other hand, if the mom, the dad, and all the kids came to church all together, they would feel a lot less um, awkward or intimidated or whatever. And I think there's a, a day is coming when we will see or we need to reach 
whole people groups, families, or connected circles at once, not individually. So, for instance, we're going to do the outreach that Bernadette mentioned to Purgatory Chasm. Let's just say you're part of a soccer team, and uh, you love your friends, and you're like a pretty tight-knit so soccer team. I think you've got more chance of all your friends coming if you just invite the whole soccer team. You say, like, all of you come. Then at least your friends have got friends who know each other, and there's some level of comfort. You all come, and you all have fun together. And, uh, you know, if church is appealing to them, you all accept Christ together. When the Spirit of God has moved historically, uh, you'll find, like, you know, through Boston in the early days, I mean, whole people groups, towns, communities were impacted simultaneously for the gospel. And what I'm trying to say is this. Sometimes when we ask people to have a relationship with Christ, we need to think about the consequences for their family or for society. Missionaries in the past, when they went out into India and they were witnessing to Hindus, uh, they realized that if one Hindu accepted Christ, it was going to come to nothing because that Hindu couldn't go back into their family without being kicked out of their family and tribal systems are pretty tight-knit. On the other hand, if the whole tribe, whole community accepted Christ, it was a game changer. And God is in the community changing business. I think for us, we need to also have an expanded view of how we do uh, outreach or connect to people or how we invite people. Uh, so we might want to think more about inviting people to church or to the Lord as a group uh, and thinking of that. Uh, I just uh, throw that out there. Um, but let me, just, uh, let me just say what I want you to get from this uh, message today is really some ability to talk to your friends and family about the Lord in a way which is not argumentative, but it's loving. Where, you know, people will actually be listening and not just switching you off. Uh, how do we engage people in a meaningful way? That, if, if we can walk out of here today with a couple of tools and tips or thoughts, and you feel like this is the Spirit of God leading me in this direction, I think it would be a, a, a real positive uh, message for today. So, Holy Spirit, we just ask for your help. Uh, if we ever feel inadequate or intimidated, it's with this idea of taking your good news to people that are potentially hostile towards it. And uh, Lord, we also know that we love you so passionately and we would love to share you with others because you mean so much to us. And yet, Lord, we know that there's a barrier just because of people's lifestyles and people's value systems. And, and we just ask you, Lord, for your insight, your leading, your spirit to move in us where we just, like the Apostle Paul, desire to be used by you to see others come to know you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. If you have a Bible, uh, uh, why don't you open it to uh, Acts chapter 17. And as a, uh, while you're getting there, to try and explain what I'm saying, there's been a lot of uh, interesting, to say the least, things happening on college campuses in the last few years. And uh, what I'm trying to get at is how do people debate when you've got passionate views that people don't all agree on? Now, in the past, in the Northeast universities, the more liberal universities, there's always been a high tolerance for people that have a viewpoint which may not be the politically uh, correct viewpoint, or maybe it becomes a politically correct viewpoint. 
but there's always been the ability to uh, express your view on a campus setting uh, in one way or, or another. And mostly on the East Coast, Northeast, and mostly on the West Coast, Northwest, or parts of California, Berkeley, you know, some of the more liberal areas where people have been able to express divergent views. This seems to be not the case anymore. Uh, in uh, at Yale in, in 2005, uh, a, a professor there, who's him and his wife have been on campus, live on campus, and they have come from that exact viewpoint in the past. College, university is a place to express a viewpoint. And uh, the university was contemplating making a law stating what you can or can't wear on a T-shirt uh, because it is offensive to some regarding Halloween. And uh, so the college professor said, look, I think it's a really bad idea for the university to start legislating what people can and can't put on a T-shirt. You should be able to express whatever you want to express. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's sort of been the traditional background. But this particular viewpoint is uh, regarding Halloween. Some or other, the students were upset about it was uh, representing African-Americans, traditional African-Americans, in a bad way. And so they felt that the university needed to have this law, ban this phraseology, and uh, this didn't go down too well. So in the public square, in the middle of college, they're having a debate, and the students ended up shouting out the professors, uh, and then they demanded that they resign, and then it escalated up to, you know, uh, to the dean, and um, the, the professor said this. He said, uh, Yale have become places of censure and prohibition. She said, uh, you know, how do you have a place where we can talk to each other and discuss viewpoints? She said, free speech and the ability to tolerate offense are the hallmarks of a free and open society. And so that's what they're saying. One free speech, we want to have a hallmark for that. And then uh, more recently, a couple of weeks ago, in uh, Washington State, at the College of uh, Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, uh, they decided that they wanted to have a day of absence, uh, which involved white students being asked to leave the campus during lectures on racial privilege, on racism and privilege. The students decided, look, we want to have a day where just black students are on, all white kids need to get off because we want to talk about racism and privilege. And one of the professors said, well, look, I, I don't think this is such a good idea uh, to ban white kids. And so he got shouted down, and then the college president got involved, George Bridges. And then the students screamed obscenities to him, too, and chanted, hey, hey, ho, ho, racist teachers have to go. And, you know, so all I'm trying to say is this. I'm not make a political statement. I want to make a statement about how do we communicate when we've got radically opposing views? Because if we're saying at the university level, we are unable to communicate and have opposing views without, you know, I don't know. I don't know where this goes, but we are seeing presidents of colleges being, uh, you know, terminated. I know my daughter's college president at uh, Ithaca College got ousted, uh, you know, for a similar uh, kind of a not having the, uh, the in viewpoint on something. 
And, uh, I, you know, whether it's right or wrong or whatever or not, I don't know. But what I am trying to talk about is how do we bring faith? How do we have discussions? How do we be civil in a democratic society? How do we talk to people when people have different viewpoints to ours? Uh, that's what I uh, am trying to get at. And as believers, I think uh, we can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul and the way he did things. So let's just look at uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 15. And let's just see some of the things that we can pick up here from, from the Apostle uh, Paul. And, you know, as we go through these things, we, we see that there's a lot of, of wisdom here. Paul has gone through all sorts of areas where he's just had you know great success and great hostility and here we go again in Acts chapter 17 it says this Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns now here's an interesting thing Paul doesn't stop at every single town some towns like these that just get mentioned and then he moves on um, so Amphipolis and uh, Apollonia and came to Thessalonica Thessalonica he sticks where there was a Jewish synagogue he found some area of connection of traction he gets to the synagogue, as is his custom. He went to the synagogue service, and then for three Sabbaths in a row, he used scriptures to reason with the people. Now, this is the point I want to make here today. One method of trying to communicate is your reason. Now, look what Paul does. He reasons with the people, he explains the prophecies, and he proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. Uh, Paul is appealing to the intellect. He said, I'm going to reason with people. I'm going to use the scripture. I'm going to try and explain it. I'm going to try and prove that what I'm telling you is based in, in this particular case, in Jewish tradition. And you should believe in the Messiah because here are the prophecies that are predicting it. And this is what the Messiah has come to do. And he's using reason and he's explaining it. That's in this particular case. Now, What's particularly interesting, for the first time in Acts, and for the first time in the apostles' teaching, now we're in Acts chapter 17, he's done a lot of preaching up until this point. This is the first time in speaking to the Jews, he's had to try and explain what is a very bizarre concept, that you should believe in a Messiah that has to suffer. Now listen, we're familiar with the fact that Christ died on the cross, but just think of this from the mindset of the Jewish people of the day. You want me to believe in a God that suffers? You want me to believe in a God that dies? I want to believe in a God that's mighty and powerful and is going to rule. And No, he's not going to suffer. He's going to remove suffering, which is the exact same objection that Muslims would have of Christianity today. So, you know, Paul is appealing to the, the scholars and he's saying, wait a bit. You're missing something. It's right here. It's in the scripture. The Messiah needs to suffer. Now, that's a whole other sermon for why the Messiah needs to suffer. But he needed to suffer. Recognize that this is the Messiah. He's, he's appealing to the intellect. Follow the steps. It's one, two, three. It's logical. Do you get it? And the outcome was some did and some didn't. So the Messiah must suffer and, be, and, and rise from the dead, he said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Some of the Jews who listened were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women. So again, you know, when we're engaging people and dialoguing with people, we're looking for the some. You know, there's a few, there's one or two that will get it. The majority, most people are just going to think what we're doing is foolishness. 
Uh, that's the sort of a mindset we need to have when we're engaging uh, people, which actually when I was at the Timlin race, my experience was most people were, you know, either Catholic and, and, and happy about it. Uh, there was only one woman that was pretty hostile, uh, and I was basically encouraged. Uh, it wasn't a, a tough uh, crowd at all. But in verse 5, as we've seen the similar pattern in previous chapters, uh, some people get jealous, some Jews were jealous. They gathered some troublemakers from the market, and they formed a mob, and they rioted, and they attacked, you know, in this particular case, Jason, and then blah, blah, blah. They, you know, pushed Paul out of town. And, but here's what I want to highlight, which often happens in dialogue. If you look down in verse uh, 7, it says this, And Jason, who was the host, had welcomed them into his home. They were all guilty of treason against Caesar, for they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. What happens pretty quickly is this. Things escalate. And when you try to be rational or deal with people on a normal basis, people become like so irrational. You know, it's like they can't just say to Paul, look, you know, your message is a little offensive. They have to escalate it to treason. You know, it's like this, What? I mean, the charge is like so disproportionate to the message. It's like treason. I'm just trying to explain to you about the Jewish scriptures and the Messiah. Like, where does this happens to us all the time? We will get misunderstood and we will always be put in the category of the worst. You know, this is like you're the most worst fundamental, if that's an offensive per term to somebody, they'll put you in that category. Or, you know, you're un American or you, you're not patriotic or whatever. However, they can escalate this to make you or us feel really bad. The, the city got in turmoil when they heard these reports, and basically Paul and them got kicked out. And then we see this pattern again as they go to Berea. Verse 10, that very night the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Same pattern, same story. They're not discouraged. They still want to talk to people about Jesus. And the people of Berea were more open-minded than those of Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the scriptures and day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. Look, there will become times when you preach and we try and encourage people to come to church and it's just like nothing. You get like no response. People have no interest. Uh, people just shout you out. They just like think you're crazy. And then all of a sudden you'll randomly, it seems, uh, strike on a group of people and they'll really be interested and they'll really be reasonable and they really want to have a good dialogue and they really are interested in finding out more. And then, you know, that's where you like, okay, slow down, stop, listen, you know, invest in these people and in this particular case, a good number of people uh, ended up coming uh, to the Lord. And then the pattern that we've seen continues. And then some of the Jews from Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word in Berea, and they send down a mob, and they run him out of town. I mean, you know, there's the pattern. Uh, what I'm saying for us to learn from this is that sometimes you really need to know the Word of God. I mean, like if you're going to share the Word of God or your lifestyle, it's very helpful to have in your head like an understanding of how you're going to respond to people's objections. And this is a lot more difficult than what it seems. Uh, and the better you know your own audience or the person that you're trying to speak to, the, the more uh, selective you can be about the verses that you want to use. 
And a great combination is knowing a bunch of scripture and your own personal story. Like, this is how it worked for me. This is how I related to God. This is what God has done for me. This is what I'm really pleased about. You know, only God could have known or only God could have done. And you back up your story with, uh, with scripture. I think it's a, a helpful tool. Uh, let me, if you've got a bulletin insert, uh, I've already made some of these points, but let me just highlight the first one is uh, the ability to articulate why you believe, using Scripture to support your testimony. And if you look at that verse 17, 2 and 3, you might want to you know, circle these words. Uh, Paul used Scripture to reason, circle that one, explain, circle that one, proved, circle that one, there's a logical process going here. This is sort of like a college approach. You know, you're going to explain your material and you're going to put it across in a way that people can get it. The second point that I uh, want to make and want you to be aware of and prepared for is some people will be very resistant for no apparent reason. People are going to exaggerate uh, accusations against you. You know, they may not say treason, but uh, they're not going to be very re happy or responsive to you. The third point is the exact opposite of the second point. Some people will have be very receptive for no apparent reason. So some are very hostile for no apparent reason, and some are very receptive for no apparent reason. Uh, our job and our delight is to try and figure out those that are receptive to the Lord and to share the Lord with them, to encourage them. If I want to recap uh, real quickly on what I've spoken about in some previous uh, sermons on the way I think society, when we speak to people, uh, are dealing with religion or dealing with church, uh, for some people, uh, they would say we should just outlaw religion. I spoke about this a few weeks ago, a month ago, and we've uh, seen the pattern in some countries as they tried this, particularly Russia, uh, communist China, the Khmer Rouge, uh, the result was not more peace and harmony, uh, but more oppression. There were food shortages, and the, the, the lower classes just swelled, and the upper classes just got really, really wealthy. Uh, and to summarize this, Alistair McGrath, I think I have this as a slide, he said the 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most dis distressing paradoxes of human history, that the greatest intolerance and violence were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. This idea of, like, let's just get rid of religion has had the worst possible impact in countries that tried it. It was worse for the people. It was worse for, the, for everybody. So the next step is, is scaling that back, and I, this is also a summary of what I've discussed in previous weeks, is if you can't outlaw religion, you just condemn religion. And the idea is this, uh, you condemn it one way or another. You, you say, look, your particular religion is nothing special, you know, whether you're a Hindu or a Muslim or a Jew or a, you know, whatever, all paths lead to God, they all got some element of truth, they all just paths just up the mountain, just from different sides of the mountain, just get along with you, you know. And uh, that's all very well, except the person making that claim that they're all equal is indeed a doctrine and is indeed a claim and that person is indeed saying well this is my religion my religion is that i know much more than you do in your religion and my religion is that all religions are equal and you should just get along okay so that person now doesn't have a book a religious book it has a head it's saying this is my logic it's so superior to yours I, you know i'm better than god and 
all religions are the same. Well, who said they're all the same? They're not. Uh, then the other end of the spectrum is all religions are equally bad. Just get rid of all religions. None of them have anything meaningful. If we just get rid of all religions, they're all false. Uh, there'd be no problem. The one I want to talk about today is keep your religion private. This is the prevailing uh, view I think we would have today in America, and it would go along these lines. You can practice all you like about Jesus, do your thing in your church, say whatever you want to at home, but don't bring it into the public square, and don't talk about religion in schools, and don't talk about religions in politics, just keep that private. And uh, again, I think I have a slide for this up there. In 2007, there was a, a paper that got put out, and it was called a Decla Declaration in Defense of Science and Secularism, which called on our government leaders not to permit legislation or executive action to be influenced by religious beliefs. And this got a whole lot of traction. Another professor from Yale, Stephen Carter, said, look, this is totally not going to work. Are you asking for Christians to be the only population group that needs to like, check the things that they hold most valued and most dear out when they come into the public discussion? You can't do that. You can't ask somebody you know, that's passionate about the Lord to just get into a political arena and not have any of that come into the, 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 the mix. So as we have seen, uh, a lot of this has created a lot of turmoil in America in the past number of years. And we know we're clear of this. We're not getting any better at this. We're probably getting worse at this. But uh, it affects every part of our life. How do we uh, take on what God is precious, uh, views are precious, what the scripture says is precious, particularly human life and the sanctity of life? And how do we... Uh, do American society uh, in this day and age. I mean, it's impacted things like abortion, euthanasia, marriage and divorce, uh, sexuality, uh, drug and abuse. Uh, you know, Massachusetts, we're currently looking at the marijuana law. You know, can we bring our religious convictions to the table? And the, the viewpoint would be, no, you can't. Get your, keep it private. You know, we'll figure out if legalizing marijuana is good or bad and who should have it. We'll do that ourselves. Sexuality, well, the latest Massachusetts or national issue is LGBT. And now we're seeing the LGBT community is really mad at the LGBT community because they're feeling like the LGBT community, the white LGBT community is misrepresenting the black LGBT. And like, there's like, they, they're not dialoguing with each other. Now it's like, it's, you know, it's like a mess. I mean, it gets, the society is getting stratified in small and smaller sections where everybody is less and less tolerant for everybody else's viewpoint. How do we communicate? And how do we bring a biblical viewpoint into these discussions? Marriage and divorce. I mean, Massachusetts, you know, no-fault divorce. The only question is, like, what's best for you? Like, if you think you, uh, it'll be better off alone, off you go. A traditional biblical viewpoint is it's not about you it's about your kids it's about your family so the question should be what's best for your kids what's best for your family no you shouldn't get divorced just because you're unhappy or you know sexually you're not being fulfilled stick it out and the secular viewpoint would say no it's all about my own personal happiness i'm not happy i'm out here i don't want you know and so legislation gets changed and euthanasia oh my gosh uh, we've just had again you know this last week it was kind of crazy for those of you that follow the news, uh, 
Michelle Carter got convicted of uh, involuntary manslaughter for the death of her boyfriend, Conrad, Conrad Roy. And for those of you that didn't follow it, I, I would just say this. Uh, she was encouraging her boyfriend to take his life, and uh, she did it through texting. And he eventually did take his life, and so she's been convicted of uh, manslaughter. But this is how it went. Uh, she, the girl says to her boyfriend, uh, you keep pushing it off, your suicide. And you say you'll do it, but you never do. Just have the guts to do it. I mean, just do it, will you? And so finally, he uh, decides he's going to commit suicide. So he fills his, his truck with carbon monoxide, and he's busy dying. And he gets out of his truck, and he texts his girlfriend. And she says to, to his friend in the text, just get back in the truck, which he does, and he dies. So, uh, you know, in a similar way, this viewpoint of human life, from a biblical viewpoint, we're saying God is the author of life. It's God that decides when people should die or who should die. It's not us. We don't come up with our best ideas about human life. And so uh, the last thing I'll say before uh, closing is Oregon has had uh, euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. It's been legal in the state of Oregon since 1988. And only 22% of the patients that have died through euthanasia died because of physical pain and suffering. In other words, 78% died because of psychological pain, meaning I'm depressed, meaning, you know, I don't know how I'm going to have any hope for the future. Oh, we'll just die. We'll just give you some, you know, medication, just knock you off. It's not because people are dying of, you know, can't take pain. But what gets depicted when you're trying to pass legislation is they'll find somebody that's in chronic pain from terminal cancer and it's like, and they say, look, can't we just be merciful and allow the doctor to kill this person? And then the population says, yeah, sure. And then once it's on the books, then of course, I'm feeling depressed. I've got no way of knowing how, okay, well, do you want to die? Sure. Okay, well, let me stick a needle. And that's what's happening. What I'm saying here is this, how do we bring the good news of God the hope of Jesus to our society. How do we have discussions about this in a civil way? It's no easy task. Uh, what I am saying is the basic thing that I'm most interested in is more people knowing Jesus. I, I'm far more passionate about people coming to know Christ because once we've experienced hope personally, once we've experienced God's love personally, once we've experienced the fact that we don't have to do life on our own personally, we then have the ability to explain that to others. We can take our own messed up lives and explain to others how God has helped us, how through the help of the Holy Spirit we have overcome, how by the hope of the Holy Spirit within us we have hope that the future can be bright, uh, that our temporal suffering today uh, is going to be, we're going to have sense of it in eternity. In fact, eternity is going to turn back the clock. We will be justice and understanding. And we'll understand a lot more than what we do at the moment. So I'm much more interested in us, you know, infiltrating, talking to people, seeing our friends, our family, come to know Jesus in a personal way, and then allowing the Spirit of God to transform not only our individual lives, but our society's lives. I just... Uh, personally, I'm just like not a big fan of like, let's elect a president and the president will solve the whole problem of the whole country for all that matters while the rest of the country does whatever the heck they want. Uh, it's got to come from the ground up. 
Uh, and again, I, I, I'm not even actually motivated by the president and politics. I'm motivated because I think people need to know Christ, period. And for each of you sitting here today, I, my closing message is this. How do you personally have a vibrant relationship with Christ that gives you hope? And how do you personally explain that uh, to friends that are around you that may or may not be suffering or that need help or need Christ? Everybody needs Christ. I think Christ is the solution for everything. I really do. World peace. I don't think you get rid of religion. I think you have more Christianity. Uh, you know, personal peace. I don't think you get rid of Jesus. I think you get more of Jesus. And so uh, I just encourage you today as we close, Jesus is the solution. Jesus is the power that transforms us personally. We need to be transformed. We need to experience God's love and hope before we have any chance of influencing those around us. And people will very quickly look at you and say, but you're not perfect. And your answer better be, unlike being a Muslim or being like a good Jew, trying to you know, obey all the laws, you'd say, you're dead right I'm not a perfect person. It's only by the grace and the hope of Christ that I have this joy within me. It's Jesus that's perfect, not me. And I'm trying to become more and more like Jesus, but I ain't there yet. And you know, thanks for pointing out my flaws. I need to have them fixed within me. Jesus, I just pray for your people. Lord, just fill us all with joy, with hope. Help us, Lord God, to engage in dialogue with our friends that allows your spirit to move through the, the conversation, that they too experience joy and hope and relief from suffering because you are doing it and your spirit is alive and active. And for those that want to receive you, Lord God, that they do experience that joy and that peace once they've received you. So, Lord, I just pray that you'd empower all of us. Because you commanded all of us that believe in you to go into all the world and make disciples. And, Lord, we partner with the church to do that. Where we can see people being baptized into the name of, into your name the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we just lift up this week, this summer, before you, in your name, Jesus. Amen.